Welcome to the Smarticle Podcast. My name is Brandon Doble. My partner Larry and I do a daily podcast called Smarticle, where we take articles and talk about them. And we did one with a YA author named Kristen Dwyer, who wrote a great book called Some Mistakes Were Made. And I had interviewed Kristen way back when in COVID 2021. And when we interviewed her again, because she's got a new book coming out, I thought, man, it'd be really cool to reintroduce this. Now, when I did this, I was doing kind of a different form, long form narrative of podcasting. And I didn't think it was very good. I still don't think it was very good. I interrupted Kristen too much. But man, it has some really, really cool things in it about the writing process and about how she became a writer. And I think it's worth posting. It's long. You can scroll through it if you want. Ignore me. But Kristen is an amazing author in person. So I wanted to post this just as a an addendum to the shorter Smarticle track that we've posted. So hopefully you'll enjoy it, especially if you're a fan of Kristen's. Just an interesting story about how she got to become an author and what her writing process is all about. So without further ado, I give you Kristen Dwyer, author of Some Mistakes Were Made and The Atlas of Us. Today with me, I am very fortunate to have on my very first author, Yay! Kristen Dwyer, who is a young adult. Can we even call that as a young adult author, is that even technically really an author? Um, yeah. Okay. Because they gave me the money. <laughs> well, we're going to delve into that a little bit. So I think I mentioned to you a little bit, this show is about sort of understanding how people get to the, the artistic process or how you get how you got to where you are, basically. Yeah. So you are a young adult author. How did you even get started with that? That's the first question. Now, I will. I want to preface this by saying I love YA fiction. I've read so much YA fiction as a teacher. Yeah. Sort of to be in cahoots with my students, but yeah. I love it. So, first off, Kristen, I'm a little being a little rude. How are you today? How's I, it going? I'm good. I I am starting my day with you. So Yeah. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. And we got some great weather and it's just beautiful. Yeah, very pretty. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh I want to give a little bit of background on you and then we'll talk about sort of how one becomes a young adult fictional writer yeah. uh like books like hunger and the hunger games yeah. there are also a lot of hungers in young adult fiction titles yeah a lot of a lot of girls saving the world yes from, like the and apocalypse. like like unrequited heated love but yeah. no actual like there's no like it's just heat there's this he's so hot he's so heated there was that one they're on an island and they like there's one wife it's really like they, they go nil Oh yeah, Nil is a big one. Mm-hmm. Nil is a big one. All the girls love reading Nil. I read it out of solidarity with them, and I was like, "Oh, kill me now, please!" This is horrific. <laughs> All right, so that. let's start at at the beginning. Where are you from? Where were you born? What's your story, Morning Glory? Uh, well, I was born in um, Northern California, and I oh hey, go Northern California. Yeah, um, I lived there my whole life. Um, and I what was part born- of Northern California? Just for the Northern California uh, folks, like right outside Sacramento. Oh, pretty much my whole life. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I knew yep. you guys lived in Roseville for a while, but I yeah, didn't that's right outside it. Sacramento. Okay, like, yeah, I know it is, but I just I, so Roseville. Yeah, pretty much. Well, I lived in um a like a neighboring town, Citrus Heights. So like basically, hey, that I know same, Citrus Heights. Yeah, oh, yeah, basically the same like area my whole life, and then um I had got married there, had kids there. Um, it was I didn't ever imagine my life outside of California. I really like California. I I actually love it, and um me too. But Unfortunately, um, fires are real, and I was like, I can't do this again. Yeah. 
And when the pandemic hit, I was like, if everybody can work from home, why why keep doing this? Why live somewhere where I can't go outside for three months of the year? Yeah, let's hold off on that a little bit because I do want to talk about the California angle on all this because it's, I think for people that aren't from there, it's hard for them to truly understand yeah. the pressures of being there. It's an yeah. amazing place, but it also has some huge downsides. Yep. And not to like paint. I could just see your people going, oh, California, oh, worst place. No, there's a reason why millions and millions of people live there. It's yep. pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. But there are some downsides. So yeah. you're raised in outside of Sacramento and Roseville. We call it Sacra Tomato. Because you always drive up there in the fall and there's <laughs> tomato. You're like, oh, my God, he was murdered on this road. You find it's just tomatoes <laughs> yep. that have fallen off the tomato trucks. It's <laughs> yeah. awesome. So you're raised in Roseville. Did you go to Roseville High? I didn't. I actually went to a, a high school in uh, Citrus Heights called Mesa Verde. Yeah. Oh, so California. Mesa. The Green Verde. Mesa. Yep. So beautiful. And I don't believe it's a Mesa. It, there's nowhere. There's no, no, there's no Mesa anywhere. there. It's like flat as a, it's like the only place in California the that's valley. actually truly flat. I yeah. mean, I feel like you guys are maybe calling it Mesa Verde's. Sort of, is that a marketing thing? I think it probably. It's hey, like, come it's to really Mesa pretty. Verde. It's, it's beautiful and tall. Yeah. Um, it's not. All right. So you're raised in California. What, what what was your family like growing up? Um, You know, it was really interesting growing up. Ooh. We had a. Uh, um, I grew up in, like, just it was it was wild. I, uh, my parents were both addicts when I was growing up. Oh, and, oh. yeah, and so um, my teen years, I really clung a lot to my friends and their. You're parents- the most normal person child of an addict i've ever met yeah well no I but I was, well. <laughs> no well yeah maybe but but i'm saying i mean looking at you from the outside you've definitely uh, having had uh one parent who was an addict yeah an alcoholic but mm-hmm. saying well maybe both i don't even know yeah. but so when you were a kid growing up with addict parents wh- what was home life like well home life was was real interesting because we had um so like my freshman year of high school, my my dad had taken off, and he was in um, he was in Oregon. I think he was kind of evading oh. some kind of something. I don't I don't really remember actually. Were and they then, hippies? Uh, no, they okay. were like I mean, my I didn't know this until much later, but my dad was like in prison before he met my mom, and so he missed the '60s because he was in he was in oh, prison. Wow. Yeah, and so he's like I I wasn't a hippie. I was like I was in jail. <laughs> I was oh, like, okay. Gosh. Was it mostly drug related? I mean, not to get too personal, but yeah. was it mostly? Yeah, that's the scourge of it all, right? hash across the Mexican border. Oh, okay. And, yeah. Well, sure, that'll get you in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Federal prison. So. Sure. And then he met my mom and they fell madly in love. And um, How my, old were they when they, if you remember when they got married? Yeah. Well, my mom was, when she met my dad, she was 19 and my dad was 29. Okay. So they were, they had like a 10 year gap um, between the two of them. And my mom went to school with my uncle and my uncle told my dad, my dad told me the story. And he's like, uh, when I met your mom, I was like, who's that? Who's that, that girl at this like house party. And my uncle was like, that's Paula. You don't want to mess with her. She's nuts. She's like, she's the worst. Oh. And my dad was like, I'm going to marry her. <laughs> nice. That's the one I want. I want to get, right. the, I want to get with did. the crazy. Yeah. Nice. And they, they were together um, until my dad died. So, um, yeah, it, it, it was, a it, it was funny because like you grow up with addict parents and you kind of survive, but there are all these like really, um, great moments in between all the really terrible stuff like you know being homeless or you know not having enough food to feed yourself or or whatever there there is a lot of like um things that 
I am really grateful for, like the fact that my mom always got it done, always. And like her, her strength really inspires me a lot. I'm like, I can do anything. If my mom can make sure that like I have a dress for prom, you know, even though I don't have a house to live in, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I can, I can make it work. Were you an only child or did mm-hmm. you have siblings? I have a younger sister. Okay. We're three and a half years apart. So we were kind of always on different like tracks when we were like in those formative years. So like when I was in junior high, she was in elementary. When I was in high school, she mm-hmm. was in junior high. What and- was her experience of being sort of uh- – Life being tenuous, um, yeah. Her life being, was it similar? Yeah, she at one point had to live with friends, and she was with my mom a lot when she was really younger. Like my mom took off at one point. My freshman year of high school, my dad was gone, and my mom like took off, and so I was living alone in a house. And um, while my mom was living with her boyfriend, um, one of the many times my parents like separated, and um, my sister was living with my mom. So like it is this weird thing where we were we were like growing up almost kind of separately where we had completely different realities where my, my sister was living with my mom and I was like just kind of abandoned, which is they're both equally terrible. You know I mean? Having come from a, a incredibly dysfunctional family, especially yeah. like my parents split up. I mean, I can really appreciate that, that mm-hmm. kids from those sort of traumatic households yeah. gain radar. I like to call it radar. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you would call it, but like, you can walk into a room and read things. Yeah. At least that was my experience. Yeah. Was that was it your experience with your parents? Like, did you were you always kind of wondering who you were going to get? Yeah, I, I think there's that adaptability that comes with it. So you become really in tune with what's going on, and you learn like what part of yourself to play into in front of what people and like. I mean, that's how I responded to my trauma, um, and because you become very good at being able to walk into a room and kind of assess what's going on. So that you're never kind of blindsided by something. Yeah. yeah. It's uh Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, I found that to be a fairly universal thing of kids mm-hmm. with either addicted parents or mentally ill parents or yeah. like any when when you have parents that are challenging, kids have to learn how to adapt to the situation in order to survive. Or they yeah. don't survive. Yeah. And the ones that survive and do well are the ones that really figure that stuff out. Yeah. So you was your growing up in school, was that always did your friends or your peers know that you were going through that? Um so I grew up in the neighbor in a neighborhood in an environment where a lot of kids were going through the same thing as me. Uh, so my best friends were kind of going through all the same things with me. And I remember we had a friend who her parents always had a house. Like I, that sounds ridiculous. Like they always had a house, but they always lived in the same house. Mm. So we kind of used that as like our central hub. And no matter who didn't have a house that, you know, particular time, we could kind of go stay there. Um, and, we I had, I had another friend that I got in high school and her parents both had jobs. And I found that like I thought they were the richest people I knew because I had no grid for any of this. Like, you know, my parents were in and out of work. You know, I could work the, the welfare system in California really well, wow. you know, and, and things like that. But like when you when that's your normal, you walk into any kind of stability and it's shocking to you. It, I mean, it truly is. Yeah. So you're like, what is happening? Yeah, I had friends. I would always. I had like the most normal friends on the planet because their homes were so innocuously normal that it yeah. made me feel like, ah, oh, it's like a safe haven. Whereas, yeah. you know, I, uh, you know, and I don't, I don't think that my childhood was anywhere. Near, I mean, I didn't have to deal with that kind of stuff as far as like welfare and everything, yeah. but it's still challenging. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. so you're growing up, you're, you're in this, I, I want to call it tumultuous. Is that a fair word to sure. use? Yeah. Um, 
And so what was what was the what was your high school experience or middle school experience like as you're kind of yeah. developing as a person? I this is so wild. I haven't thought about this in so many years, but in middle school, my parents got really bad. I remember like I would reach in, I would borrow my mom's pants, and I would reach into the pants and I would find bags of um of meth in like used bags of meth. They oh, wow. didn't have meth in them, but I would, I, cause she had worn the pants before I had and they hadn't gone through the wash or whatever. And, um, or maybe they had. And, and I, so in, in middle school, I was realizing that my parents were addicts. And, um, I ended up in this class with this, he was the school counselor, but he taught something. I don't remember what it was, but I was in his class and I was, I was the kid who yelled back at the teacher and oh, I wow. got into his face and I yelled at him. And he was, smart enough to realize that there's something going on. And so he took like those two years of middle school, he took a real hands-on um, interest in my life. I mean, he pulled my parents in for counseling sessions. And I mean, he just was, he was amazing. If I am stable at, in any capacity, it, it probably is because of him. And he was a school counselor? He was a, the school counselor, yeah. And yeah. it's so funny how oftentimes having spent, you know, most of my career in schools, how, we only hear the horror stories about teachers, and I'm not, I shouldn't say the horror stories, but I can, I can pretty much guarantee you any person that has has had to struggle mm-hmm. and has come out of it has probably had somebody like that. What was his name? Can you share it? Um, Mr. Axtell. Yeah. Mr. Axtell. So mm-hmm. shout out to Mr. Axtell if, yeah. if you're still out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I had Mr. Leet and Mr. Um, Hewitt. Those were the people for me in school that were just. And our school librarian, which is, yeah. I want to get into that, like, so books and libraries yeah. are so critically important to my development. But those, someone's got to take interest in you and care enough. Yeah. So, so he fought through your yeah. anger. Oh, yeah. Through me, through me yelling at him and would explain to other teachers when I would tell the teachers, literally tell teachers to F off. He would, he would say, like, listen, you don't, you, you got to give this girl some grace. And at the time, I didn't know that's what was happening. But like, looking back. As an adult, I'm like, oh, that's what was going on. Wow. Yeah. And, and so nowadays he, people would be like, oh, that guy was Mr. Axtell was like, oh, you know. Yeah. And that's the sad part about it. So, so oftentimes things get turned into this sort of, you know, titillating conversation yeah. around a teacher's done wrong. I was like, no, there's way more teachers doing right than doing yeah. wrong. Well, how do you not get invested, like working in that job? How do you not, how do you not, I mean, I, I just I imagine it would be really hard, especially in the school that he was in. Yeah, so he was in sort of a tougher school then. I didn't know that at the time, but yes. <laughs> and you were one of the challenges. I was probably the biggest challenge. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Looking at you now, it's like crazy to think that to me. I was a mess. <laughs> so you were a hot mess in middle school. Yeah, and which which is completely reasonable and, and understandable based on you know sort of life circumstance when you're finding meth baggies in your back pocket. Yeah. Um, you know things like that. So. What was high school like for you then? High school was um, kind of more of the same, but without Mr. Axtell. He wasn't there. Mm. And so um, I had some teachers really early on that kind of figured out that I was a mess, but I wouldn't go to class. I, I still to this day won't do anything that I don't want to do. And then I just really would not do things I didn't want to do. And so... They had given me a bunch of warnings and they told me, listen, if you don't get your life together, you're going to get kicked out of school. And I did. I got kicked out and I went to continuation school for a year. And the continuation school was attached to the high school. So it was like this, like the bad kids club in the back of the school. Uh-huh. It was like hilarious. Yeah, but we had it. We called it. It was called Masalacon, but everybody called it Muscle Head. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. It was, so the continuation high school. Yeah, it was for all the kids that like 
thought or whatever. And I'm there for, you know, my, I can't go to school type thing. And you got credits when you went to school. If you just showed up, you got a credit. Yeah. And so I just showed up and it was only like from like seven to noon every day. It was like, they're like, please, please just show up and we will, we will try to help you graduate. Yeah. And there I had another teacher, um, Mr. C and he, um, he was when I decided that I wanted to be a writer. Wow. He, uh, taught me that you don't, you can break rules in writing. Like I thought there were all these rules with writing and that you had to like follow this like very specific grammar formula. And I was never a really good student, but I like really wanted to tell stories. And he was like, you can start a sentence with, but you can start a sentence with, and you can do whatever you want to your writing. And he would like bring me these, um, these different writers that like broke all these grammatical rules. And, and he's like, these people can do this. He's like, also there's an editor they're going to do all that for you. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. So wait a second. You That's crazy. So you're at a continuation high school mm-hmm. and you just had you always wanted to be or had you always liked telling stories? I'd, I had been like a liar since the beginning. Mm. <laughs> like, good writers are liars. Yes. So that's good. Yeah. I, I remember, I vividly remember being at the dinner table with my parents and we were, there was a play at school and I happened to tell my parents that I got the leading role and that I was going to ride a motorcycle into the auditorium and that was going to be my thing. And I remember my parents just looking at each other like, oh my God, this girl is nuts. And to be fair, like they didn't know what to do with me. They didn't realize that what I was doing was storytelling. Uh And so they, you know, were unable really to, to like mentor me that way. But my dad loved reading because he was illiterate till he went to prison. Whoa. Yeah. And so he, when I was very young, would be like, here's The Hobbit. You should read this. And I'm like, there's no kissing in this book. <laughs> and he's like, don't care. Read it. And so like, you know, 1984, and he was constantly putting novels until he died. He was constantly putting books in my hand, making me read. And so that coupled with, you know, a teacher who recognized that I wanted to tell stories, that I wasn't just a liar, um, that that, uh, that was that like the gift in me was being misused. That's what got me here. I mean, really. So. Wow. So, you know, it's funny. You're talking about reading. I was a remedial reader up until third grade, and mm-hmm. I can't tell you why I was. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a, I, I was, by the fourth grade, I was an incredibly strong reader because mm-hmm. I discovered this series of books thanks to my school librarian mm-hmm. called, wait for it, The Happy Hollisters, <laughs> about this like bucolic family that solves crimes. Yeah. It was like the poor man's uh, Hardy Boys and Nancy mm-hmm. Drew. But it opened up all, all these windows. I, I would say that, I was never a good student because I didn't really have a lot of parental support to be a good student. Mm -hmm. But reading opened every door for me. Reading opened up everything. And so it's interesting when you say that, like, here's a kid going to a continuation high school who's telling their teachers to F off, but is also discovering another world that exists that is different from what their experience is. And that sort of led you to where you are. I mean, so you go through high school. Did you, you, you go back, I'm assuming you went back to high school, the regular high school. I did. And then I dropped out. Oh, nice. Well done. So So you dropped out in what year? Uh, My senior year of high school. And why'd you drop out? I'm always curious why people would drop out. Well, I dropped out because I, I'm like, I was only going because I was under the impression that I was going to be able to graduate. I, it was a very tight, I had I had to get like a certain amount of credits and the school counselor that I was talking with was like, you will be able to graduate. And at the very end, he was uh, he told me in, in April, 
he told me, actually, you need 2.5 credits, more credits to graduate. So you will not be able to graduate. And then I was just like, well, you know what? F this. Like, fine. Then I'm not going to, then I'm not going to show up here. I'm going to go live my life if, if mm-hmm. I, if I, if this is what it is. And I didn't have anybody telling me, okay, like this is the game plan or this is how we're going to make this work. Yeah. It was very much Take like, one class in summer school and you'll get right. Your, yeah. Right. It was very much like, you know, well, you know. You'll be fine. Just you're you're gonna work at McDonald's anyways, type thing. So, do you think you got that message from your teachers and people in the school that you were like, "This is you, you look. Why even why mess around because you're not headed anywhere." Right there, there were there were so many great teachers at the school that like cared, but they because they were good teachers, they got all the good kids, right? Right. So all of the teachers that I was subject to were not great teachers. I mean. They were the ones who had given up already. And so I remember one of the really good teachers my senior year, she rearranged the entire schedule so that I could be in her creative writing class, even though I should not have been in her creative writing class. But I think she was just like, listen, I'm rooting for you. I think you can do this. I think you can go off and do good things with your life. I I believe in you. And I just, at that point, I couldn't even hear it because so many other teachers had counted me out. And I'm the kind of person where I'm like, oh, okay, you think, you think this is bad? Wait till you see what I do. Oh my goodness. So, so you're, you know, that's interesting because I've, I've always thought that for a lot of our student population, the idea of having, KIPP school does this thing where they basically have the kids in six days a week and they, they stay and they eat dinner and they have, they do their homework there and then they go home. So they basically create a, a stable home life for them at yeah. the school. And I'm like, man, in a way you would have been, a, I don't know if you would have put up with it, yeah. but you in a sense might've been a candidate for that because yeah. your home environment was so rough yeah, and so unstable that having, right. obviously you're bright. My point is obviously you're bright and you're capable, just didn't have the structure in place no. to do what you need to do. So you sort of not graduate from high school, you're two and a half credits short, what are you looking at? What's out over the horizon for you when you leave school? Uh, nothing. I don't go to college. I don't. Um, I don't do anything. I get a job in a restaurant. I work mm-hmm. in restaurants because that's what kids do, and it's fun and exciting. Mm-hmm. And um, my friends that are in college are like you know busting their butts, and I'm like available whenever they need to go to a party or whatever. Right. And then I meet a boy, and I think that he is the most charismatic human to ever exist and i get pregnant oh boy yeah and so then at 20 i'm pregnant i'm living with this guy who kind of likes me kind of doesn't like me and i don't know any different i just think like this is going to be my key to stability right like right this will do it you're looking for home yeah and um and then that doesn't happen and he ends up we end up breaking up and he ends up with uh, another girl who he's actually married to her now. But then I spend my early 20s with a kid and with no real stability. So I go out and I get a job and I support myself-ish kind of. I mean, but I don't have a roadmap for any of those things. So I don't really know what I'm doing. And um, and then my dad gets really sick, like really sick. And he gets cancer and and he dies. And that was... How old were you when he died? I was 25. Okay. So you, you know, your life's been just pretty much roses up to this point. I'm doing great. <laughs> you have, everything's just great. You yeah. have a, a newborn, basically a, a young child. Yep. I mean, you know, boy, right? Yep. Um, boy. Before, that's right, because you have one boy and three girls. We'll get to that because those are characters, <laughs> those girls. So 
you, your dad, how, how traumatic was that for you? I mean, I'm, I, I'm assuming like my mom died when I was fairly young. She died uh, at 57 from a stroke after living a hard life. And so I can, it's, I, everybody deals with grief yeah. and death differently. So I'm yeah. wondering what's that like for you? Um, he died of cancer, so it wasn't sudden, which is the worst. Worst. Oh my gosh. I'm yeah. like, just take me when I have to go. Like, yeah. don't put anybody through that. And, um, and I was very close to him. I felt like he, he got me. He didn't ask. My mom and I are very similar. We were hotheads. And mm-hmm. so he, he just always understood me. He never, he never asked me to be anything other than what I was. And I really appreciated that. But, um, when he, when he died, I didn't know what to do because between my parents, my dad and my mom, and then Talon's dad, my son's name is Talon, Mm -hmm. and between him and his wife, like I, I, they were, they were my support for Talon. They were the reason I was able to like live. And, um, when he died, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And, um, I went, I got, went back to church and I met my husband there. But I didn't know uh, it was my husband. Oh. Um, I mean, obviously. We, we you know now meet. that he's your husband, right? Sort of. Sometimes. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> but then I met um, the guy who was going to be my husband. I met his family. And they lived in this 4,000 square foot enormous palace. She has seven kids. My mother-in-law does. And um, Wait, your husband's one of seven kids? One of seven kids. Oh, wow. And they're like the the family that comes in the frame, right? That's what I see when I see these people. I have no grid for them. And my mother-in-law sees me, this like girl who just lost her dad and, you know, is a single mom. And she just decides to invite me over every Monday night for dinner. Every single Monday, I would go over to her house for dinner. And um, it was it was really kind of eye-opening because I saw like this stability, in like in a married couple, which I really hadn't seen before, mm-hmm. like they fought in front of me, but they didn't like throw anything. <laughs> it's like right, wow. they just had arguments. Like normal yeah, people. it was weird. Like yeah. you can you can fight without like punching a wall, and so um, so I think that really was a huge shift for me after my dad died and I started going back to church. Is her taking a, an interest in me, and then my husband. Um, was her oldest son, is her oldest son. And um, he was like, hey, we should get married. <laughs> I was like, why? Well, were you dating? We, we, we dated for three weeks. And he was out of the country for one of those weeks. Yeah. Wait, wait. Oh, wait. Breaks on for a second. <laughs> so what, what, why would, what? We, why would he, why would we he? We were friends before that. Like, so you had been friends for quite a while. Yeah, she was like inviting you over. What made your husband now? Decide, yeah, this is the one I want to be with, not without ever having dated. I, I tricked him. I told him I was normal. I don't know. Like, well, I mean, obviously, I no he idea. was attracted to you, and obviously, yeah, he yeah, thought yeah. you were pretty cool, but he was also taking on a woman who had a son. Yeah. He mm-hmm. was taking on a woman who, I'm sure by that time, you knew, he knew a little bit of your story. Yep. Well, so, what do you think his motive? I mean, motivation sounds like, oh, he's got this mad scheme, but what do you think his thoughts were about that? I, you know, I, I don't really know because. One of the things that I came up against in the church a lot was um, men that wanted to save me um, and like, oh, Kristen has a, a child and I can come in there and be her white knight. Right. And I'm like, I am super capable. I don't know if you know this, but like, I don't need you for anything. I don't need you to save me. I'm perfectly capable of saving myself. And that's not like a feminist thing. It's just from when you grow up rough, yeah. you figure it out. Right. Yeah. And my husband 
he never did that. He never, he never presented himself that way. He never, um, because Talon's dad has always been involved in his life. Um, David never was like, I'm going to be his dad and I'm going to save you. He was just like, cool. Rick's awesome. That's great. You know, he's involved in Talon's life and I want to be his stepdad and support him. And, yeah. and so and I know your husband well enough to know that he's a pretty mellow yeah. down to earth dude. Mm-hmm. So I'm not surprised that he would sort of react that way, mm-hmm. but you, Oh my God. I don't even know how to unpack all that. Um, <laughs> so you guys date for three weeks and then you get married. Yeah. yeah. And your does your life dramatically change from that point of getting married? Yeah. I mean, it. I move out of this. So I lived in this neighborhood. I lived in this duplex since I had Talon. So this is like seven years in this duplex in Citrus Heights in this cul-de-sac that was kind of off this really busy road. So everybody in this cul-de-sac knew each other and everybody was super low income. And at, like, and it was like, I remember when I, I was telling David, I'm like, oh, I have to go outside because the neighbor. David's your husband. David's my husband. Yeah. yeah I, I was like, the neighbor is trying to shoot his um, girlfriend with a bone arrow. So the entire neighborhood sure. is out there like, you know, hey, you can't shoot your, you know. Yeah. Hey, probably don't shoot her with a bow and arrow, dude. <laughs> I know. Like, it, like, he's wasted. So we have to go out there. Like, I mean, it's just a totally different life. And mm-hmm. then I move in, I move from Citrus Heights into Roseville. And even though it's a zip code, it's a. It literally is a different county and it, it was such a different life. The houses were nice. This Like there's a lot of cops everywhere and like I have to deal with the police. And I mean, I remember one time, this is like a whole tangent, but I'm going to tell it anyways. We, David and I, I'm pregnant and we come back to our house and the alarm had gone off. And so uh, we opened up the garage and we walk in the house and there are police in our house because I guess the house alarm had been going off for a while and they have their guns drawn on Ooh. us. And we both put our hands up, right? And like, I've talked to many a police officer. And so was my husband. And he's like, you put your guns down right now. My husband is telling the cops this. And I'm like, you don't talk to the police that way. And I'm like, what are you doing? We're going to get shot. And he's like, they work for me. And I had this moment where I was like, oh, we have not lived the same life at all. Like, I would never speak to the police like this. And they put their guns down and listened to my husband. And I was just like, this is bonkers to me like just the the idea that you would be able to talk he's like they're in my house Kristen. i opened the garage if they used their brain they would be able to see that like i clearly live and they were just trying to do their job right and they're they're, yeah yeah. i'm trying to do their job also i don't want them to arrest me because i had the healthy fear of the police sure you're like i must have done something wrong at the popo here (laughs) you're here yeah i did it probably i don't know what what do you you got what an interesting just dichotomy on Mm -hmm. on the just how two different people think about the same incident yeah yeah no it, it was it was really really wild and i have a, a lot of poverty pride like a lot of poverty pride um because of the way that i grew up so like the first like five years of our marriage he would say something about food or finances or anything and i'd be like well you don't even know because i grew up this way and i had to work through a ton of that of the like i'm better than you because i've had the struggle mentality mm. and um so I've never heard the term poverty pride, but I can I understand exactly what you're saying in a yeah. sense that you develop this shell to say, well, you know what? You may think that this sucks, but I survived it and therefore I'm better than you. Yeah. So, yeah. 100%. So, yeah, I, I get that. That's interesting. I've never heard that term. I yeah. like that. Yeah. So I, I find it um, I find it really interesting because I have this really knee jerk reaction every time people talk about poverty um, because I feel so like protective of it. Because it's such a unique experience, like really 
poverty adjacent to addiction. Because I think poverty itself without addiction is a totally different struggle. But poverty with the with the uh, the extra added benefit of addiction, the way people grow up and survive in those types of settings, I feel like I'm like, I don't want you to tell that story. Like, I don't want you to be the one. Like, if you don't know, I don't want I, I so it's like it's a weird it's a weird. like. I don't think I think it makes perfect sense. You know, it's funny. I, in some ways, I wish that this show was was video at times, because if people could see you, they'd be like, she looks like the classic soccer mom. Like, I mean, you <laughs> literally look like, you know, I'm, and you are in a way. You I mean, you have three lovely kids here, an older yeah. son that's in college. Yeah. And, you know, so it's like in every way, no one would ever walk and say, oh, she's from the yeah. rough streets of Citrus yeah. Heights. Yeah. But that's a part of who you are. Yeah. And it's part of what makes you who you are. I mean, people say the same thing to me. They're like, you did wh- what happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, your mom lit your bed on, your parents' bed on fire with gasoline? I'm like, yep, that happened. <laughs> you know, so so just so sort wild. of like those things that, that make us who we are. Mm-hmm. All right, so you and you and David are married now. Mm-hmm. You start uh, hatching little uh, little ducklings. Yeah. You have... Because that's my job, right? I'm sure. a lady. And- but that's the crazy part. Of, it's just so not the way I envision you. And not that there's anything wrong, but like you literally have the three, these three crazy normal little yeah. girls, right? Yeah. So you have, you and David have three girls together. Talon is off. Well, he's older, obviously. Yeah. What's life like for you guys raising these kids? Um, we, so I am looking at the model of my, my mother-in-law, uh, her template, right? She had seven, she's a mom, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I respect my mother-in-law so much because not only is she a mom, but she's very close with her kids to this day. I mean, she, they're, they are very They moved family. across the country mm-hmm. to follow their kids. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it, we're, we're very, very close family. And um, it, it was, it was everything no, that I No, wait a second. Before you go on from that. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's the, right. So I just want to give you a little, can you tell us about your guys' move? You moved to Asheville. Yeah. California. We can unpack why. And I do want to yeah. talk about why people leave California, but. Just in brief, so you and David decide you're going to move, uh-huh. and then what happens to the rest of the family? Out of well, curiosity, we decide we're going to move in June. As we're recording this, it's the end of February. So last June, I was like, "Listen, I got to go. I can't. I cannot live here anymore." We were on a family vacation with like our entire family. We were quarantined in um, San Diego, but like the whole family was like on a vacation. I'm using air quotes. And um, I just tell my husband, I was like, I cannot, I can't go back. I hate the house. I hate where we live. I hate everything. What was it that you hated? Um, I hated our neighborhood. I hated the house that we lived in. We moved into this fixer-upper. And I'm like, we are going to be Chip and Joanna Gaines. It's going to happen for us. I feel <laughs> like we could do it. We're going to knock down walls. And then I got in there. I was like, yeah. I am not no, a Chip and Joanna it's Gaines. It's terrible. Yeah. I was like, nobody, nobody I did the same thing that. in Louisville. And I'm like, I'll never do that again. Never. Yeah. Turnkey only. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, when we were, we, I just like, we have to go. So my husband's like, okay, that's going to be a lot of work. Get the house ready to sell and whatever. And um, we tell our family, we're like, hey, we're thinking about moving. Um, and we thought it was going to be this whole like discussion. We'll do what's ever best for your family, blah, blah, blah. We call it big family and small family. What's ever you know, good for small family. And um, everybody, everyone on this family vacation was like, yeah, we'll, we'll move. We hate it here. We, we want to go. Fire season's stupid. Cost of living's ridiculous. Yeah. We'll go. And that's, I guess we unpack a little bit of that now, you know, people that uh, are from California, growing up in California, uh, when, you know, I'm I'm older than you, but 
it, it's changed. It's yeah. just not, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't think of California as being different. It's what you know. But I mean, yeah, we always had great weather. But I never felt like there was this just oppressive weight of of population and the fact that you can grow up in a place and say, yeah, but I'll probably never be able to own a home. Yes. And I'll never be able to do these things that what seemingly is normal. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that is normal. I, I mean, there are places all around the world where people don't own a home. So it's not like, but, but, it, and, and then again, it's also sort of the, like you said, the fire season. When I was a kid growing up, I don't remember a fire. No, wasn't that I, don't, I mean, there were fires, but yeah. they were always like, yeah, oh, there's a fire. But now it's these infernos. These, these the massive months. fires mm-hmm. that I remember driving up to Santa Rosa where I grew up and seeing this entire mall had been burnt to the ground yeah. that we used to go to. I'm like, how in the world did a fire get there? Yeah. My kid goes to school in Santa Rosa and he, three months out of the year, they shut the school down. It's nutty. And it's just, so again, there's so many good things about California, right? So, but as a family, you guys decide as an extended family, yeah. not just you decide so, you're all going to pack up like the Clampets from uh, the Beverly Hillbillies yep. and you're going to head to Asheville, North Carolina. Yes. I had a friend who moved out here and um, she, she we write we write together a lot. Um, she's kind of like my writing partner. And um, she moved here and I came to visit and was just like, well, this is the promised land. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a pretty – it's a terrible place people don't move here. It's gross. It's horrible. The borders it's are closed. nasty. <laughs> So you move with the family in mass. The basic. How many of the kids move? Um, of David's siblings. Uh, four. <laughs> That's five. awesome. Sorry, five. Five, five of them. So That's... two of them. One is in Scotland right now. Mm. They're moving to Poland, but they're waiting to get into Poland. Um, and then the other one is in Canada. So those two of the but brothers. But of all aren't the here. people, everybody left California mm-hmm. and came to Asheville. That's yeah. like you guys moved the family. That's yeah. I, that's how I do things. I'm like yeah. Bring bring the whole team. You really made an impact on this family, though. Because probably <laughs> they're not moving if you're not involved. You know, I am pretty A type, and they yeah. are pretty B type. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'm just so like, all right, crazy. come on. So, all right, let's get to the the writing part of this. You're. You're raising girls. At what point, and I know you said that in high school you you had some people that influenced you, but were you writing all this time during? I was secretly writing. And I'm in this mom's group um, where, you know, we talk about being a mom and how it's our, like, most important calling, which is amazing. I love being a mom. I'm not discounting that. But you get to this place in your life where you look around and you go, okay, they're going to leave. <laughs> and right. then what? And then do I have an identity outside of that? And can I have an identity now? And so I was like secretly writing all of these books. And um, when you say writing, were you like pen to paper? Or were you typing? Or typing. You- like I, my husband bought me a laptop and like just like a really cheapy Chromebook type one. And I would just like write things and then I would like put them in a secret document and like never share them with anyone. Really? Yeah. And um, because I, I didn't want to share any, I didn't know what I was doing. I still don't feel like I know what I'm doing. And yet you're published. So we'll we'll get to that. But anyway, so. And I happened to be at a mom's group one night and I confessed to my friends. I'm like, I am secretly writing a novel. And my friend, Adrian, she said, she's like, I'm writing a book too. And I was like, this broad just stole my thunder. Like I'm the one with the book. And she, I know she's the worst. And she, so then we kind of got together and started like reading each other's pages. Is that your writing partner now? Mm -hmm. The one that moved out here? Yeah. You've become such good friends with. Yeah. We've, we've been writing together for 11, 12 years now. And. So this started about 12, 11, 12 years ago Mm -hmm. when you started writing. 
And I only bring that up because, you know, it's the old saying, it's like, it took me 10 years to become an overnight sensation. Yeah, right? exactly. So in the writing process for you, do you, if you looked back at those early writing work for you, yeah. how different are they from what you're creating now? You know what? They're interesting because they have all the heart in them. Like those things before I knew what I, what I could and couldn't do, mm-hmm. what I should and shouldn't do. They're like, they're, they're just a lot of heart and a lot of like really like pure storytelling. They are hot garbage and they will never see the light of day. But when I go back and I read them, I'm like, I can see how passionate I was about about writing yeah. in these works. Do you feel like it was cathartic in the sense of getting stuff out? Yeah. That, I mean, obviously writing for many authors is that way. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a form of catharsis. So yeah. you're writing this stuff. Now, let's talk about, you know, skip forward to the present day. Yeah. You have a young adult fiction. Why'd you choose young adult fiction? No, and, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with you. I love I know, it. So. I know. I know. Yeah. I, I know. I, I think why it gets a really bad rap. It's, it really is a lot of firsts. It's a lot of your, like, a lot of experiences that shape us. And I wanted to tell a story about, I like to tell stories that are about these, the, the crossroads, the place where you have to make a decision that mm-hmm. is going to kind of shape who you are. You don't have to stay on that road, but like, I think as kids, we take a lot of roads and we try on a lot of different hats. And I like exploring characters that are evolving and growing all the time. Yeah. I love that. So that's why I continued to write YA. I've only really written YA. So Well, it's fascinating too because YA is – some of it is honestly some of my favorite mm-hmm. books are YA. I mm-hmm. think some, pe- some people are able to write in a way that's not – pedantic where yeah and what i mean by that is you read somebody's not why fiction you're like oh my god you are catering to a 12 year old girl and there's nothing wrong with that but i'm not a 12 year old girl so i don't right. have like oh he was right. so he was so hot you know yeah, it's like yeah. oh but then there's some that are just gripping in their in their storytelling there's a book yeah. back in the 70s it doesn't translate very well but it's called the pig man it was just about this kid growing up in a rough neighborhood yeah. and Anyway, um, but but it was a YA book, and yeah. it was. You know, I remember. It was, I think the Outsiders is YA. Like, oh, totally YA. You know? Yeah, Outsiders is totally YA. Same genre as that. Yeah. So, what's the title of your book? Uh, some mistakes were made. Ooh, ooh yeah. fitting. So, yeah. some mistakes were made. Yeah. And give us the brief synopsis, or can you give us a brief synopsis? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. It. So it's contemporary YA, which means it's current. It's not like a fantasy world. Damn, um, it's not dystopian. Zombies. I know. Oh. I know. Well, I was writing that before. That's what I wrote. I wrote a lot of fantasy, and a friend of mine. Um, we we were at this writing conference, and this really famous author was on a panel, and, and she was talking about writing contemporary. And she goes, "It's like bloodletting for me. It's the hardest experience in my life." And I like very like haughtily was like, "What an idiot! Writing contemporary is super easy. Fantasy is super hard." And all my friends, they all write fantasy. They just kind of looked at me, and they're like, "You are bonkers. That is not true. It is so hard to write contemporary." And so they kind of ganged up on me and like asked me to write this contemporary novel that I had started a long time ago. And so this book, Some Mistakes Were Made, is a contemporary novel that is about a girl who has been sent away her um, her senior year of high school and she graduates and she's asked to come back home to the family that sent her away. And her dad's in jail and her mom is like split town and she's gone. And she really has only grown up with this family as like her anchor. And so it's holding dual timeline and you're trying to figure out how she got from like being embraced by this family to being sent away. And then it's the re- resolution of that. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. I think I'll actually read that. That <laughs> well, sounds I mean, it's great. A love story too. Well, you know, 
the interesting thing about that is, you know, we always tell when we write, we write about, we, we since we write what we know and we write about ourselves. So, mm-hmm. so it's obviously, yeah. I'm assuming a little semi-autobiographical, it's, it's, you know. So I'm, I'm like, I got to call some people and tell them that they, our experiences are in this book. <laughs> well, and that, and that's the beauty of writing, yeah. right? It, so you're, you know, it's funny. It strikes me as something you just said about like, you didn't go through your natural, you, you didn't go to the writer's school in at Iowa State and Mm-mm. or University of Iowa, wherever it was at Flannery yeah. O'Connor. I have an MFA in writing. Right. I mean, but you have, in a sense, been in this long graduate program of working with other writers yes. to develop a thing. Mm-hmm. So how did you get published? So I started writing like 12 years ago and it. I thought, this is it. I'm going to write a book. And I'm going to sell it. And I'm going to be the next Twilight. You guys don't even know. I'm about to be so famous. And I realized that, you know what? It's very rarely is it your first book that you get published. Mm. Very rarely is it your second book. And for me, it was seven books. Whoa. I wrote seven books. And um, and really like got in there. And it, all of those books were a great experience because they helped refine me as a writer. I think that you can be really good line by line with a pro, with pros, but if you can't finish a book, if you can't follow story structure, if you don't instinctually understand story beat, then you're, you're not going to write something that people will be able to like, you know, get through and read. And, you know, that unputdownable book that all comes from like a, a melding of all of those things. So That's awesome. And when's it going to come out? Comes out in Next year, right? Yes. So I don't have an official date, but it's supposed to be the beginning of 22. So, which is good because then COVID will be over and people can go back to bookstores. Fingers crossed. Kind of a bummer to like, I knew somebody had their book published on, on um, 9-11. And the book came out 9-11 and it was like, yeah, it didn't go well. Uh, oh. So in the last few minutes we have together, I love this story. I had no, I knew parts of it, but I didn't know. It's actually so much better than I thought it was, but. <laughs> You, so you have these three young girls and you have an older son. Mm-hmm. What do you want them to know? Like, I mean, you're, I'm not, this isn't a secret. You're pretty different than your girls, but you're also yeah. similar. I especially think of yeah. the middle one as yeah. being, um, if I was going to pick one that was a lot like you, at least on the outside, yeah. she strikes me as that. Yeah. Um, but Very what, much. how do you raise these girls? Or how, how do you take from your own childhood to give them something positive? Yeah. Um, that's hard because that requires being, um, you know, being self-aware enough to know what was good about your childhood mm-hmm. and and then what you don't want to do. Obviously, I have weird quirks. Like, my pantry is full a lot. You know, like, wow. Oh, I I'm get, there, sister. Don't worry. I yeah. get you. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't like when my, my food goes low. And I, I don't like when I don't have toilet paper or, like, these just weird – that's not weird, items. by the way. That's called scarcity mentality, and it's a very real thing. Okay. For people <laughs> that didn't that. experience that yeah. growing up. It may be weird. My wife, Corey, is, yeah. is she's always like, why do we need? I'm like, because you never know when you're not going to have <laughs> you it. You never know. So anyway, um, no, I don't. I, I know that what you're saying, it's weird yeah. in the sense that you probably wish that you didn't have that. Yeah. But that said, it, maybe it's just one of those things we just have to learn to deal with. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, the good thing from my childhood that I, I think about a lot is I was surrounded by really strong women, like my whole, my whole life, my mom, she had to get it done. And so- one of the things that I really can look back on and think that was a good thing was I'm very independent, almost to a fault, but I do want my kids to be independent and I want them to be able to critically think and be able to think on their feet. And so I don't solve a lot of problems for my kids, which, you know, my son loves 
no, he doesn't. He hates it. But um, I, I, I don't. I, I'm like, you got to figure it out. And I do that for all of them when they're very young. Like, ah, you're hungry. Go figure it out. You know. And uh, it's a. Uh, it's it's kind of like that like weird like opposite of a helicopter mom type mm-hmm. thing. But I think for me, that's the one thing that I can take from my childhood and be like, this was useful because I can survive almost yeah. in any situation because I'll be able to figure it out. Myself. Isn't that funny? Because I think of that oftentimes I could be dropped off in the middle of the biggest city in the world that didn't speak my language and I would I would survive. Yeah. I'd figure yeah. it out. And yeah. that's that's an interesting maybe that's part and parcel to going through that. Yeah. Um so the book is called Some Mistakes Were Made. Mm-hmm. will be out in early 2022. Uh-huh. Kristen Dwyer, this is actually, I, I didn't expect this to go this way. Truly fascinating. You are a, a success story. I can't wait to read the book and the other books. I'm hoping the fantasy series comes out after this because <laughs> I love the, the YA fantasy is the best. Anyway, yeah. that is all the time we have. Thank you so much for coming on. Yay. Thanks and, for having me. And we'll talk soon. Yeah. Bye. I opened the door and I slid in slow Grabbed some tapes, took out the stereo Nick took the radar off of the dash And the glove box bin found a hundred cash Then I saw flickers at the front door Tom DeLoach pulled out his 44 Said, who the hell's breaking into my pool?